When Andy Griffith passed away in 2012, CNN covered his death off and on the entire day. You've all seen this type of news coverage before. An overview of the career, images of the star in their prime, phone-in conversations with other celebrities who were close with the departed. Larry King is one of the people who called in to talk that day. He'd had Andy on his various shows numerous times, and he mentioned something in passing that's really interesting. What Larry said is that a lawyer named Percy Foreman was the man who inspired the character Matlock. This was a weird thing for anyone to say because most people, even today, believe that character to be based on a different lawyer named Bobby Lee Cook. However, in 2015, three years after Larry King said something that most people would assume was incorrect, the creator of Matlock did confirm that the character was based on Percy Foreman, a criminal defense attorney from Houston, Texas, who lost only 53 of the 1,500 cases where clients of his faced the death penalty, with only one of those losses resulting in an actual execution. Percy was able to achieve this record by being an incredible lawyer, no denying it, but also due to the Texas court system's practice of using juries to determine guilt as well as sentencing in the case of a guilty verdict. So instead of one judge, who's heard it all before, determining his client's fate, Percy had 12 average citizens from the local community sitting right there, waiting to be convinced that the victim in this situation wasn't a victim at all. They were up to no good. The community was far better off without that element in it. And even if his client had killed him, well, hell, they needed killing. Foreman called it misdemeanor murder. That's where a jury might convict you of ending another person's life and send you on your way with the type of punishment you'd receive for a misdemeanor crime. Often, nothing more than probation. No time at all. It's essentially a sanctioned form of vigilante justice. Percy Foreman had such a long run of wins with this strategy that it's still being used in Texas today. People who have conversations about this sort of thing will sometimes refer to it as the Texas defense. Now, Jim Denny wasn't from Texas. He was from Tennessee. The Buffalo Valley area, about 60 miles east of Nashville, was a real poor area to be born in 1911. When a 16-year-old Jim Denny got hired to work the mailroom of WSM Radio's parent company, he must have seen it as an opportunity to make something out of himself. Denny got this job in 1927. That year, the young radio program WSM Barn Dance was referred to as the Grand Ole Opry for the first time on air. Now listen while I tell you about a place I know Down in Tennessee where the tall corn grows Hidden from the world in a bunch of pines Where the moon's a little bashful and seldom shines Civilized people live there all right But they all go native on a Saturday night Every time an odd job came up at the Opry, Jim would take it so he could hang out backstage, see the artists, and see how the show was made. Within 20 years, Denny had worked his way up to director of the Artist Service Bureau at WSM, which meant he was in charge of booking the acts on the Opry. 
there's a few funny things from Jim Denny's time at the Grand Ole Opry. Like the one about Elvis Presley's big debut. Elvis was still a teenager when Denny did Sam Phillips the favor of letting Elvis come on the show to play his not country arrangement of Blue Moon of Kentucky. It didn't go well. Denny is rumored to have told Elvis backstage, you ain't going nowhere, son. You gotta go back to driving a truck. Denny's also the guy who fired Hank Williams over the telephone. And there's the time when Jim made Johnny Cash wait outside his office for two hours before letting him in to ask why Cash should be allowed to play on the Opry. Cash mentioned that he presently had a song called I Walk the Line in the top 10. Jim Denny was what many people referred to in those times as a hard man. Today, I think they'd have some different words for him. And that's why Ernest Tubb tried to shoot him in 1957. You're listening to Cocaine and Rhinestones, the podcast about 20th century country music and the lives of those who gave it to us. My name is Tyler Mahan Coe. I've heard these stories my whole life. As far as I can tell, here's the truth about this one. It's shocking to hear Ernest Tubb's name associated with any kind of violence whatsoever. There are plenty of stories about him, but most of them are about how great of a guy he was. He had an adorable nickname, E.T., and you can hear admiration in the voice of everyone who calls him that. Crisp, Texas is a ghost town now. Ernest Tubb was born there in 1914 into a family of sharecroppers. Like most sharecroppers' children, Ernest grew up working on farms all over the area. Long days in the field, entertainment from a stereo in the evenings, an early bedtime, and you get back up the next day to do it all over again. Typical day for a sharecropper. Like a great number of artists we'll learn about in future episodes, it was all over for a 14-year-old Ernest Tubb the first time he heard Jimmy Rogers sing. The obsession was instant, and it would steer the course of the rest of his life. Hearing Jimmy Rogers is what led Ernest Tubb to decide he simply had to become a country singer. It's also, very specifically, what caused him, three decades later, to want to shoot a 357 Magnum at Jim Denny. In 1933, Jimmy Rogers died young of tuberculosis. He was 35. The death of his idol was extremely upsetting for Ernest. However, it also made him realize that he was going to have to get serious about chasing his dreams. He moved to San Antonio, made a few guest appearances on a friend's radio show, and managed to secure his own early morning show, which aired twice a week. Not bad for a 19-year-old kid, but don't get the wrong idea. He was nowhere near the big time, and the pay was quite slim. E.T. had to keep two other jobs besides the radio gig. Some days, he was a ditch digger and other days, a drugstore clerk. 
holding down three jobs at once was necessary to support himself and his young wife, Elaine. They didn't waste any time before starting to have kids either. Ernest was more than happy to work hard if it kept him moving towards the life of his hero, Jimmy Rogers. He'd had this small picture of Jimmy for years now, and it was in pretty bad shape. So he got a phone book and looked up the number for Jimmy Rogers' widow, Carrie. He called her on the phone to explain that he was such a big fan and to see if she happened to have a bigger, better photo of Jimmy that Ernest could have. Maybe even one that was autographed. Carrie was super nice, and she did have such a photo that Ernest could have, and went so far as to invite him out to her house in Careville, Texas, to get the picture. Ernest drove out there the next Sunday he wasn't working, taking Elaine and their baby Justin on the trip. They'd planned to stay for maybe 10 minutes and ended up hanging out for over two hours, looking at costumes, guitars, and pictures brought out by Mrs. Rogers, hearing her stories about how high on the hog they'd lived merely a few years earlier. E.T. could never have guessed when he woke up that morning that he'd be laying down to sleep that night, having held Jimmy Rogers' signature Martin acoustic guitar, with Jimmy's name inlaid in pearl across the fretboard and the word thanks written on the back, upside down, so he could flip it over to show audiences. Choose your biggest dead hero and try to think of how you'd feel if a similar experience happened to you. It's mind-blowing. Okay, now add this on top of that. A few months later, Carrie Rogers called Ernest to say she'd listened for his radio show as he'd asked for her to do. On one hand, she offered to help E.T. out with the access she still had to music business big shots. On the other hand, she didn't think he sounded like Jimmy Rogers when he sang, which is basically the only thing in the world Ernest Hubb wanted to do in this phase of his life. And everyone around him had told him that's exactly what he'd been doing the whole time. Listen all you rounders, take a tip from me. Listen all you rounders, take a tip from me. Don't you ever marry if you love your liberty. Don't do it, boy. Oh, lady. Anyway, she still hooked E.T. up with Elsie McWilliams, the writer of a few great Jimmy Rogers songs. Ernest Tubb made a couple of records that didn't sell very well, did some touring, and ended up back home, doing low-paying radio again and working two or three side jobs like before. Driving around a beer truck was one of them. After a while back at home, Ernest had to have his tonsils taken out. He'd later say the doctors told him not to sing or yodel for a while after the surgery, but he didn't listen. Jumping right back into his normal routine re-injured his throat. It changed his voice forever. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I got a broken heart. That's all I've got You made me cry And I cried a lot I lost your love Baby, thanks a lot Ernest held a self-deprecating sense of humor about his own voice for the rest of his life. He loved to say that nine out of 10 guys sitting in bars around the country could sing much better than he could. 
I don't know if he really believed that. It's always been strange to me. I think George Jones, indisputably, the greatest country singer in history, is exactly what happens when you add Ernest Tubbs' new singing style and Roy Acuff's voice together. You just heard some Ernest. Here's a little Roy Acuff from 1942. Now, George Jones would have told you Hank Williams was his favorite singer. You don't get Hank without Ernest and Roy. I've seen Lefty Frizzell named as an influence on George. Lefty borrowed from Ernest as well. However you want to say we got to George Jones, it always comes back to Roy Acuff and Ernest Tubb. Now, the part of Ernest you can hear in George is the tendency to hold on to a note for longer than you'd expect, picking the melody up and putting it back down in ways that are impossible to predict when hearing them sing a song for the first time, no matter if it's a song you've heard performed by other people. Here's George in 1956 doing his own composition, Just One More. Put the bottle on the table Just remembering that you are gone Well, one more drink of wine Then if you're still on my mind One drink, just one more And then another Same song, same year Ernest Tubb Let it stay there till I'm not able to see her face in every place that I go. I've been sitting here so long, just remembering that she is gone. Well, one more drink of wine, and if she's still on my mind. One drink, just one more, and then another. Both versions of the song are great. It's possible Ernest really didn't like his new voice. About a million people disagree with his opinion. He had that tonsillectomy in 1939. In 1940, he had his biggest hit, Walk in the Floor Over You. This song is still synonymous with the name Ernest Tubb. If someone only knows one Ernest Tubb song, it's usually this song. We'd like to introduce a man who has become a legend in his own time. E.T. was finally big time. The Texas troubadour, Ernest Tubb. 
Joined the Grand Ole Opry in 1943 and formed the first incarnation of the Texas Troubadours. Tup would stay working for the rest of his life so members of the Texas Troubadours would be replaced every now and then. Buddy Emmons, Jack Green, Billy Bird, Leon Rhodes, and Cal Smith are only some of the notable players who joined the band on their way up the ladder. This was the first way Ernest found to extend a helping hand to younger musicians, like the hand Kerry Rogers had held out to him. Your dad made all those guys household names, yes, by did. the way he would say. Justin Tubb. He was the first one to, to call names out on records, and uh, he loved doing that. He loved the guys, and they were a big part of his show. I mean, uh, and he wanted to make sure they got the credit for it, and so he started calling their names out when they took a course. But... Uh, he was never jealous of anybody in his band outshining him. He didn't, you know, he didn't mind that at all, as he proved with Jack Green and yeah. Cal Smith. And, yeah. uh, and, of course, he had the Wilburns with him for a while, and uh, Skeeter worked some dates with him, George Jones, Stonewall Jackson, and he was always pushing them. And he, like Roy, I think, understood that the bigger they became, the bigger he became. George Jones and Stonewall Jackson were never Texas troubadours. Justin meant E.T. took those guys out on tour with him as opening acts to help them build their own following. And often, he did a lot more than that. Johnny, you had a story. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have many, but, uh, <laughs> but I have one. Ernest. Uh, Johnny Paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Many arguments. Uh, Ernest, uh, one time, uh, I was hanging around the streets and it was snowing and Buddy Emmons took me on to meet him. I always wanted to meet him. And uh, I had met him, but I mean, I wanted to sit and talk with him. And they was getting ready to go on tour and I didn't have anywhere to stay, you know. I was at that stage in my life. And evidently, Buddy had told him that because we got on. He said, I talked to him a while and I was, you know. And he said, well, it's about time to leave. He said, yeah. He said, uh, you working? Asked me if I was working. I said, no. He said, you are now. <laughs> he was going on like 10 days out in Texas. And it was snowing here in Nashville. And I had nowhere to, you know, I just, I was in that, in that place where I was, you know. He took me on the road. Wound up giving me a suit. I didn't have nothing to wear, so he gave me one of his old suits and took it to the cleaners and I had it cut down the first date we got in Texas. <laughs> and it was so... Uh, there was two pockets in the back. That's how much I, I had to take up. But I, it was a, and, and I still got a picture of me in in in, in that suit. And uh, I, I, he let me go out and I opened his show for him for ten days. And uh, he fed me and at the end of the tour gave me some money. Wow. wow. So that's the kind of guy he was. You can't tell the Hank Snow story without talking about Ernest Tubb. E.T. told Johnny Cash not to smile when he performed Folsom Prison Blues so people in the audience could really feel the song. Cash never forgot the advice. Hank Williams Sr. was heavily influenced by Ernest's music, and Ernest is the one who convinced the Grand Ole Opry to bring Hank back after his first failed audition. E.T. got Hank to promise he wouldn't touch any booze for three months to swing that one. In 1947, enough radio listeners wrote letters complaining of not being able to find his music that he launched the Ernest Tubb Record Shop in Nashville. If you couldn't make it there in person, they'd ship records directly to you. 
It was a game changer for country music fans and would help keep the music alive when rock and roll steamrolled America in the 50s. The record shop operated at a loss of $10,000 a year for the first two years it was open, but Ernest knew how important it was and he kept it alive. The Opry was a great promotional tool for him and he'd started his own show on WSM in the following time slot. When the Opry was over, fans could stay tuned in for the Midnight Jamboree. Ernest played host to Opry stars and newcomers alike, making sure to remind you this music was available for mail order from Ernest Tubbs' record shop. He took the chance to keep Jimmy Rogers' memory alive, pitching his records as well. Ernest never grew out of his fascination with Jimmy Rogers and never stopped repaying his debt to Jimmy's widow, Carrie. Jimmy's death had left Carrie in a pretty bad financial situation, but she still got money from the sales of his records, which were declining. He realized the more Jimmy Rogers' records sold, the better off Carrie would be, so E.T. pushed those records as hard as he could. Carrie loaned and eventually flat out gave him that guitar of Jimmy's, which is why you'll frequently see pictures or videos of Ernest Tubb playing a guitar that says Jimmy Rogers on it. In 1953, Ernest helped found the Jimmy Rogers Memorial Festival in Rogers' hometown of Meridian, Mississippi. That's a stand-up guy you can find plenty of people who will say the same thing about Jim Denny. Remember Jim? Poor kid from Tennessee? Worked his way up from the mailroom to become director of artist services at WSM and manager of the Grand Ole Opry. Director of artist services was a fancy way of saying he booked the musical acts that played on the radio station as well as the Opry. Denny was a powerful man in Nashville and he acted like he knew it. Where Ernest Tubb built a reputation for helping young musicians, Jim Denny had a reputation for acting like a dick. The Johnny Cash E.T. gave advice to is the same Johnny Cash who had to wait two hours outside Denny's office. Jim Denny might not have been a dick. He could have simply been a businessman who paid more attention to the bottom line than how many friends he had. Denny's the guy who had to be convinced to let Hank Sr. onto the Opry. And he's the guy who called Hank to fire him over the telephone. But Ernest Tubb was standing in Denny's office when that phone call was made. He said he saw tears in Jim's eyes. Hank had missed a scheduled Opry appearance, most likely for no good reason other than that he was drunk. Denny said he thought firing Hank would make him realize he needed to get his act together. That's not what happened. Hank Williams died four months after being dismissed from the Opry. It's tragic, but you can see how Jim Denny thought he was doing the right thing in that situation. This is important to recognize because the year Hank Williams died is the same year that Jim Denny formed Cedarwood Publishing with Webb Pierce. My sweetheart has gone and I'm so lonely
If you don't know what a publishing company is, it used to be the heart of the record industry. On the surface, a publishing company's purpose was to make sure sales royalties were going to the right place. They took a big percentage to do this, so anything that could be done to make a hit out of one of their writer's songs, they'd do it. And if they forgot to send you your whole royalty check sometimes, well, shit happens. Roy Acuff and Fred Rose had started Acuff Rose Music back in 1942. So many country writers were being screwed over by publishing companies based out of other cities that there needed to be one in Nashville, an honest publishing company run by country artists for country artists. They were the best game in town until Jim Denny formed Cedarwood in 53. As head of artist services at WSM and manager of the Grand Ole Opry, Jim Denny controlled who got to play in the Opry, their place in the lineup, and how long they got to play. Can you see where this is headed? If Jim Denny owns a country music publishing firm, while retaining singular control of the most popular country music radio program in America, then he's essentially printing his own money. Once he's got a writer signed to Cedarwood, then he's getting a huge piece of any money their songs make. If that writer also wants to be a performer, congratulations, you're on the Grand Ole Opry tonight. If the writer doesn't want to be a performer, congratulations, Webb Pierce is the biggest star on the Opry and he's playing your song on the Grand Ole Opry tonight. Roy Acuff was pissed off and he didn't stay quiet about it. He said Denny was giving the best spots to his own artists. Artists signed to Acuff Rose had a tendency to see Roy's point. Artists signed to Cedarwood had a tendency to think Jim Denny wasn't doing anything wrong. Weird, huh? Long story short, in 1956, WSM fired Jim Denny over his conflicts of interest. He started a booking agency and signed most of the Opry artists, some of whom had resigned when Denny was fired. Then, Denny contacted the Philip Morris Tobacco Company. Their competition in the cigarette business, R.J. Reynolds, was a sponsor of the Grand Ole Opry. So, when Jim Denny called with a chance for them to get their product associated with all those acts, Philip Morris wrote a check big enough to fund the biggest country music package tour anyone had ever seen. Half the Grand Ole Opry lineup these fans listened to every Saturday night was coming to stages across America for live appearances. With Philip Morris paying for everything, the admission was even free. It looked as though everyone was getting what they wanted until the Philip Morris Country Music Show booked a stop in Meridian, Mississippi on the same week as the fifth annual Jimmy Rogers Memorial Festival. But it was worse. The Philip Morris Show would take place on the second night of the two-day Jimmy Rogers Festival. For five years, Ernest Tubb had worked to grow the Jimmy Rogers Festival from scratch. This is a tremendously difficult thing to do. E.T. put in the effort to honor his idol. Jim Denny wasn't simply setting up shop across the street with some healthy competition. He brought a free show to town on the same night with half the Grand Ole Opry lineup and several big names you would have had to buy a ticket to see on the Jimmy Rogers event the previous night. It's hard not to see that as a giant middle finger. 
Can you imagine what would happen if Coachella set up a festival eight miles away from Bonnaroo on the same weekend for free? It would crush Bonnaroo. This was such a big deal that they didn't even have the Jimmy Rogers Memorial Festival the following year. They regrouped to put one on again in 1959, but Carrie Rogers' health had already taken a turn for the worse, and Ernest Tubb was never involved with the festival again. Many months have come and gone Since you called me on the phone to tell me that we were through You thought it'd break my heart But I fooled you from the start Cause I never did trust you Mostly a kind man, E.T. was different when he'd been drinking. A beer or two while gambling with the guys, he'd be fine. But it was the times when he'd get to drinking for a whole day, or two, or five. Mirrors would get smashed, windows broken. He had a thing about glass, apparently. According to Billy Bird, Ernest Tubbs' reaction to the Philip Morris Country Music Show undercutting the Jimmy Rogers Memorial Festival was to get drunk and stay drunk for the better part of a week. They carted him back to Nashville, but he was still drinking and he was still mad as hell at Jim Denny. Finally, he called Denny at home in the middle of the night to cuss him out. Denny said something like, Well, if you're so mad about it, then how about you just meet me down at WSM right now and we'll settle things for good. That sounded like a great plan to Ernest Tubb. He strapped on a gun belt with bullets and a 357 Magnum in the holster and drove downtown in his Cadillac wearing house slippers. Meanwhile, when Jim Denny had hung up the phone, he simply took it back off the hook again so Ernest couldn't call him anymore and then went back to sleep. So Ernest Tubb is drunk off his ass with a loaded gun when he stumbles into the lobby of the National Life Building where WSM was located. It's close to 5.30 in the morning. People are starting to show up for work. There's more than one version of what happened next. The gun gets fired in all of them. Bill Williams, the news director at WSM, says he was walking into work when a gunshot rang out in the lobby and a bullet went over his head into the wall. He turned around, you know, pretty scared, and saw Ernest Tubb standing there in his house slippers with a revolver. When he asked Ernest what the hell he was doing, Ernest said, my God, I've shot the wrong man. Whether or not he'd been actively trying to kill anyone, we will never know for certain. It seems to me like he thought he had successfully shot someone and was only upset that someone wasn't Jim Denny. Either way, Ernest settled down after thinking he'd shot an innocent person. Bill Williams called his boss, Jack DeWitt, to tell him what happened. Jack told Bill to take Ernest home. He would have, except the police had been called as soon as other employees heard a gunshot in the office building. Ernest Tubb went to jail for drunken disorderly plus carrying the weapon. It was mandatory to hold public intoxication arrestees for three hours. So Ernest bought cigarettes for all the other inmates and sang songs with them while Bill Williams waited to take him home. 
$60 bond got him out, and that was the end of that. Jim Denny's name was kept out of the papers, though everyone in the business could read between the lines and see who Ernest had wanted to shoot. The incident seems to have had no effect on Ernest Hub's career whatsoever. Apparently, if all E.T. was trying to do was put a bullet in Jim Denny, then that was fine. Seems I always have to slip around to be with you, my dear. Slipping around Afraid we might be found I know I can't forget you And I've got to have you near But we just have to slip around And live in constant fear Oh, you're tied up with someone else And I'm all tied up too I know I've made mistakes, dear but I'm His career lasted into the 1980s. He was still doing over 200 dates on the road a year, and he only quit in 1982 because of problems from his emphysema. In 1984, his lungs killed him, just like his hero, Jimmy Rogers. The Midnight Jamboree still airs every Saturday night, and you can still buy music from Ernest Hub's record shop or online at etrecordshop.com. We're told that in 1963, Ernest Hub made up with Jim Denny before Jim passed away from cancer. The Jim Denny Artist Bureau stayed in business for only a few more years. Jim Denny was inducted to the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1966. Cedarwood, Jim Denny's publishing company, was sold to Mel Tillis in 1983. Ernest Tubb had been inducted to the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1965 while he was still alive. I'm all tied up too. I know I've made mistakes, dear, but I'm so in love with you. I hope someday I'll find a way to bring you back with me. Then I won't have to slip around to have your company. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones. I hope you liked it, and I promise I'll get a lot better at doing this. Wherever you listen to this, it would be huge for me if you could share this episode with just one person. If you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher, then I'm told that getting reviews is really important, so I guess please give me a review. Uh, be nice. Every episode of Cocaine and Rhinestones is written and produced by me, Tyler Mayhan Co. Each episode also has a companion blog post at cocaineandrhinestones.com. Go check that out for links to the books I read, the video clips I watched, and the music I talked about in the episode. Before I get to the liner notes segment of the post show, you can email any questions you have about this episode or the podcast or me or life in general to questions at cocaineandrhinestones.com. If enough people send in questions, then I'll make a Q&A episode to close out the first season. 
All right, liner notes. Okay, first of all, if I didn't make it clear, it is impossible to overstate Ernest Tubbs' importance to country music. Aside from influencing basically everyone who matters, he was one of the first, if not in fact the first artist, to bring an electric guitar player with him onto the Grand Ole Opry stage. If you want to call it honky-tonk, and it happened after Ernest Tubb, it was influenced by Ernest Tubb. Before I get to the story in the episode, I'd like to address one other thing. In the 1980s, Clyde Moody tried to start an alternative association to the Country Music Hall of Fame called the Country Music Pioneer Association. The CMPA had a trashy newspaper that Clyde essentially used to rant against the industry and print whatever shitty rumors people sent in. Among these rumors was one that Ernest Tubb died broke and alone in a cheap downtown motel shunned by the country music world he'd done so much to help. This rumor is still spread as fact, and I do not believe it's true. Charlie Leuven even has it in his autobiography, which isn't the only thing Charlie got wrong in that book, but I'll talk about that another time. First of all, the source was Ernest Tubbs' estranged wife. Next, Ernest died owning 70% of the Ernest Tubb record shop, which had multiple locations running and was very profitable at that time. He was not a broke man. That's just, that's not realistic. I believe Ernest chose to turn visitors away because he was wasting away of emphysema and didn't want anyone who loved him to have that as their last memory of him. I don't remember who it was, but someone actually did get in to see him. And they point blank said they wish they had not gone to see him. They could tell he was uncomfortable about it and they were uncomfortable about it and they don't like having that be their last memory of him. So he was trying to avoid that. And I think Justin said that people would go, would try to see Ernest and he would tell Justin to tell them thank you, but he'd rather not have the company. So, you know, I mean, the end, I, I don't think that Ernest Tubb died, you know, in a sad state of affairs. I think that he did, I think he did a lot for country music, and I think he went out the way that he wanted to go, it seems like to me. Okay, back to Ernest Tubb and Jim Denny. What about this story, right? Is Was that crazy? Uh, it, it's just so many things, like the the roots of country music are just growing all over this story. You know, you got Jim Denny showing up right as the Grand Ole Opry is becoming a thing. Ernest Tubb gets in there and his throat is broken so he can't do what he wanted to do his whole life, which is imitate his hero. And then his throat gets broken. And so now he's got to create this new thing. And he ends up influencing fucking Hank Williams Sr. And like everyone that is... That's crazy. It's amazing. I love this story. Um, I, I won't even try to pretend to remember the first time I heard this story. It, it gets around, you know. Uh, at least the part about Ernest Tubb getting drunk and going down to the radio station with a gun and shooting and firing off around into the wall. You know, it, people always bring that up as an example of how wild and crazy these old guys were. Everybody laughs about Ernest getting hauled off to jail and ultimately getting away with causing a little bit of trouble. You know, oh, boys will be boys. 
And nobody ever seemed to know why it happened. And that's all I ever really wanted to know. People would tell you the story and just like, well, why did he do that? Well, I don't know. Who cares? It's just funny. It's like, well, I wanted to know. So I found out uh, thanks to Ronnie Pugh's very well done biography on Ernest Tubb. That finally had the story for me. And the big Jimmy Rogers Festival thing, why that affected Ernest so deeply, that was in there. Uh, the most detailed account of Bill Williams' version of the lobby shooting was in there. Uh, I went with Bill's version because A, he was the news director of WSM with a reputation for being able to throw away that day's news script and ad-lib the news without making a mistake. And B, he was the one right in the middle of it. You know, he called his boss at home. He went with Ernest to the jail. Uh, shout out Jim Farney. Uh, Everyone else just seemed like a bystander trying to get their name involved, you know, like a security guard saying that he told Ernest to put the gun away and Ernest fired it off to dare the security guard or whatever. You know, I mean, no offense if you're a security guard, but I've hung out with a lot of security guards and y'all are full of shit. So I'm going with the uh, news director guy. Also, I'm aware there are, you know, different revisionist history type opinions about how well Elvis Presley's debut on the Grand Ole Opry did or didn't go. My thing is, uh, he didn't get an encore. You know, that is a fact. He didn't get an encore. He was a special guest and special guests almost always get an encore. So the fact that he didn't get one, I'm going with it wasn't good. You know, I don't think it I don't think it was good, you know. Uh, I've seen every year from 1924 to 1929 cited as the year of Denny being hired at the parent company of WSM, the insurance company, the life insurance company. Uh, I don't really care what year he, you know, exactly was. Let's see. There was a biography of Johnny Cash that quoted a Rolling Stone interview with Johnny talking about Jim Denny making him wait outside his office for two hours. Uh, Larry Jordan's biography on Jim Reeves had a bunch of great information on the Jim Denny Opry scandal. I found a Billboard magazine from 1956 reporting that Philip Morris paid over $400,000 for the talent on that first package tour. That is a mind-boggling number. 1956, $400,000 for probably, uh, I don't know, eight, ten, probably ten acts on the bill. That's just, that's bananas. Uh, I'm going to say this guy's last name wrong. Craig Havighurst, I don't know. He wrote a book on the history of WSM called, called Air Castle. It's a really good book. It's just a massive subject. You know, the history of WSM, there's so much there. I know I'm going to keep coming back to this book for future episodes. A lot of what I got out of that for this was about Denny's firing because pretty much everywhere else you hear people talk about Denny getting fired, they're all like, yeah, I don't know. It was just like weird. No one really knows why he got fired. Or you've got artists who were with Cedarwood saying Jim Denny got railroaded. You've got artists who were with Acuff Rose saying Denny was corrupt and he had to get out of there, you know? So this WSM book was really good just to find out straight up what happened. I mentioned that Hank Sr. was heavily influenced by Ernest Tubb, but also some of the most charming stuff I've ever read about Hank is the way he acted around Ernest. You know, they were peers, they were contemporaries. He, he, Hank was influenced by him, but then he, you know, got to come to the show and be a part of the big time. 
And he, you just get the idea that he was just like a kid in a candy store around Ernest Tubb. You get the, the idea that he just really loved being around this guy and he couldn't help messing with him. He was always screwing with Ernest. Uh, Ernest Tubb's song, Walking the Floor Over You, Hank Williams took that image of walking the floor and put it in your cheating heart. You know, you'll walk the floor like I do. Uh, and, he, and he had a monster hit with it and uh, he just couldn't, he couldn't leave Ernest alone about it. You know, just like, Hey Ernest, what do you think about that? I stole that, stole that image from you. I got your image boy. Like just that kind of shit. That clip of Justin Tubb talking and the clip of Johnny Paycheck talking are both from the country family reunion DVDs, which are pretty much all amazing. If you've never seen those, uh, I think it's Bill Anderson that hosts them. There's gotta be 20 of them in a series. They've always got different old school people on there sitting around talking, telling stories. Just, I mean, if you see one, any of the ones with Grandpa Jones, any of the ones with Grandpa Jones or Little Jimmy Dickens on them are fucking hilarious. You've got to see them uh, just, just clowns. Just everyone's just clowning on each other. And we're talking like people old enough to be your grandparents just clowning on each other harder than you ever did in college. It's great. Uh, There's a book called Andy and Dawn with the confirmation of Percy Foreman inspiring Matlock. Percy is no longer alive and his New York Times obituary had some other interesting information that I did not know. Uh, Like Jack Ruby asked Percy Foreman to defend him after shooting Lee Harvey Oswald. But then there was this communication error like... uh, Jack Ruby's people told Jack that Foreman wanted like five times as much money as he'd ever asked from anyone or something. So he was like, well, screw that. I'll go someone else. Uh, and, and Foreman like seemed disappointed that he didn't get that case. So I guess he wanted that. But Foreman did represent Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassin, James Earl Ray, but only long enough to convince him to plead guilty. So yeah, James did not get away with that. Uh, Oh yeah, the Texas defense thing. Um, I have spent a lot of time in Texas and this defense thing is so effective there that I went into this episode with the understanding that that was actually a law. Like that's a statute on the books in Texas. Uh, People who've lived in Texas their whole lives believe they live in a state with a law called the he needed killing law. And I know that because these people have told me that. And, uh, Yeah, I I always just thought it was a law in Texas. Like, you can straight up murder a motherfucker if they deserve it. You know, if they've got it coming, you shoot them, they're dead, he needed killing, this is still the Wild West, don't mess with Texas. Uh, It was only after uncovering the Percy Foreman-Matlock connection that I learned that it was really just a legal defense strategy that works so incredibly well there, it may as well be a law. It's pretty intense. Uh, I think that's it. Oh, um, next week, if you're listening to this early, I'm just putting this up on the website. And uh, if you happen to listen to it early, then next week, I'm going to be talking about Loretta Lynn's song, The Pill. It's about the birth control pill. And it was banned from radio. And I was looking into why. And uh, I found out a lot of really, really interesting stuff. You know, things... The kind of stuff that, you know, everyone, no one's going to be really surprised by. But when you hear the actual numbers on these stats, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's really crazy. Um, 
Definitely come back next week. Loretta Lynn, The Pill. I'm See you there. Wild about my good cocaine. I lost the babies in the cradle in New Orleans. The doctor kept a whip until the baby got me. Doctor whip until the baby got so. Mama said you couldn't smell no more. Lord, go doctor, ring the bell. The women in the alley. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine. I'm simply wild about my good cocaine.